Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog training professionals and dog enthusiasts where we discuss training, behavior, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning, exploring, and questioning each other's ideas as well as our own so we can become better at what we do. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session. I think uh, our drinking game should be that every time I say semen, we take a drink. <laughs> All right. I'm in. Vinny, <laughs> do you have a drink? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a... <laughs> He's like, is, oh, yeah, no, I got what it. What is that? Oh, you don't know about these. What is, is that? Is it alcohol, though? I don't think so. Loverboy? What is what it? What is it called? Lover the name Boy? is terrible, but they're great. I promise you. It's called Loverboy. You would... You would, yep. It's strawberry lemonade. I'm telling you. <laughs> Trust me, it's. I have to be very brave when I'm in the store buying them, especially like when with I'm alone. without alcohol. Like, is it just a? No, it's it, it has drink, alcohol. Or like, it's it also like, gets it's, you drunk. It's like <laughs> a uh, it's like a white claw, but it's more okay. of like a tea. I don't know if you ever had the white claw tea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. So it's more like that, but it's. I'm like it's more like the white claw tea, but less like tea. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. totally. <laughs> <laughs> and then the flavors, I don't know. I've never tried the other ones because the other flavors are a little sketchy sounding. This is strawberry lemonade, so right. I recommend it. All right. But if you know. don't like it, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, we both got wine, so all right. Yeah. So every time you say semen, we gotta all drink. All right. That's yeah. that's uh that sounds fine. <laughs> we're recording so we might as well i mean this we could just leave this in there so everyone yeah, solid yeah he's <laughs> oh, like wonderful lover boy and semen and <laughs> lemonade <laughs> there's the title of this episode yep, there there we go. Go. totally be the title of the episode <laughs> lover boy and semen and lemonade <laughs> oh boy Oh boy. All right. Um, so, well, I don't know. I where guess, do you go from there? Where do you go from there? Where do we go from there? I mean, I Welcome to the K9 class. <laughs> Welcome back. We got Abigail Withauer with us here. So, introduce yourself. Tell, oh, and by the way, before you actually introduce yourself, and usually we say this before we start recording, but it's in now. So, we're going to just go with it. If one of us happens to get up, or if you need to get up, go ahead. If one of us gets up, it's usually because they're just drinking it's a lot of just water me going or to the something. Bathroom. Or, yeah, someone's going to the bathroom. Someone's dog is being a pain in the ass. Cool. So, yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, introduce yourself. Tell everyone who you are, what you do. Yeah. So, my name's Abigail. Um, I live in Birmingham, Alabama, but I just want to make it very clear that I'm not from here. And, um, <laughs> I've been here since 2008. Um, I've been a professional dog trainer since uh, a little bit before that, but about the same time. So uh, I think 20 years this year is the official, the official date. Um, my practice 
was primarily uh, pet dogs and then grew into major aggression cases. And then the last 10 years, I've been primarily focused on service dogs and uh, my service dog nonprofit. So that's the majority of what I do these days. And um, I came to dogs the good old fashioned way. I just was kind of born into it and was showing dogs from the time I was a little bitty. Um, Breeding and genetics and uh, particularly genetics for specifically purpose-bred dogs for service work is like my favorite nerdy topic. So I like to talk about that. Um, I live on a little hobby farm with a miniature horse and too many goats and a mini pig and three ferrets, a chihuahua, any number of golden retrievers, depending on the time. But the one most people know about is my service dog, McAllen. And then there's some cats mattered around here too. Amazing. I want a hobby farm. Let me tell you, I've wanted a hobby farm my whole life. I got it two years ago and it exceeded all expectations. I highly recommend it. So let me tell you. So when I was at a herding trial, maybe two years ago, I uh, got to know the judges from the trial real well um, from the weekend. And every night, you know, every night after trial, you go out to dinner, you go out to drink. And uh, one of the people got really drunk. So I ended up driving the judges back to their hotel because they didn't feel comfortable. Anyway, so we're chatting and I told them about my, you know, I want a hobby farm. And like, no, you don't want a fucking hobby farm. And it's like, why? And they're like, we both own hobby farms. Well, I think it depends on how big your hobby farm is. Like, that's the key. Like my hobby farm is like 10 acres, but 50% of it is wooded. So you don't have to do anything with it. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of it is just like, adorable little pastures that yeah they would always complain about their fences always a fence broke always a fence broke is what they used to say that's legit though yeah that part's like you know just to really motivate me up here you know (laughs) but you know i think i think the key is like if you're thinking like 40 acre hobby farm that's a a totally different kind of hobby than like a 10 acre hobby farm. <laughs> I want like trails on my property that I could just walk with my dogs. Honestly. Yeah. yeah that's a, that's a completely different kind of hobby than my hobby. <laughs> Which is like, look at my deer and my two goats and my one mini horse. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So tell us um, before we like jump into the topic um, of like breeding and service dogs, stuff like that. Um, I know you were into like confirmation or something like that. You're showing dogs. So yeah. like, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So I, um, I was a pretty competitive equestrian when I was quite young and um, that's a sport that tends to get more expensive, the more competitive you become. And especially when you're kind of transitioning from like middle school age to thinking about high school age and whether you're going to take a horse to college and those types of things, um, you know, or obviously being an Olympian or, you know, those kind of crazy dreams. But it was definitely at that point in time where it was like, okay, how how much money is really available resource-wise? And it's also a huge time commitment. So um, my parents were like, how about we take a year off? Because I'd outgrown my little hunter pony that I'd had. And so they said, why don't we take a year off and try showing dogs? And my mom had been showing dogs since the 70s. So that was something that... Um, she had stopped showing when we were little, but she'd done it for many, many years. And we had a lot of family friends that were uh, confirmation people. So um, I started showing dogs when I was I don't know, 10 or 11, I think. And I just, I just never stopped. So um, I haven't been competing very actively in the confirmation ring in probably the last, see, McCowan's eight. So probably the last five, 
five, six years for sure. Um, the more the service dogs grew, the less time I had to show dogs. Um, and then I had, um, as I became more disabled, that also became really complex, like disability, especially mobility, disability and confirmation is not super easy. So, um, yeah, but I showed a lot of different kinds of dogs. I started in sight hounds, uh, showed quite a number of various sight hound breeds, a couple of toy breeds, and then now I have the goldens. And so how did you transition from that to service dogs? Like what got you into that? Yeah. So, um, I got really interested in behavior showing sight hounds, which, um, if anybody listening has, has had sight hounds, then that makes total sense. And there's no explanation needed, but if you didn't, um, you know, I think a big misnomer and most confirmation thought processes, it is a pretty, um, rewards based sport, um, because the showier and flashier and more on the dog is the more they win. So, um, typically just a huge amount of luring, like dog shows are all about like really skilled luring. And, um, and so we were finding that, uh, as I was working for some handlers and things like that, um, some of the sight hounds were struggling with just the pressures of the competition show ring. It's loud, it's crowded. It's all of those things, particularly if they hadn't started showing when they were young. And so they were coming into it older, particularly when I was working with quite a lot of Afghans. And so I got really interested in behavior that way and trying to get these dogs to be more successful in the show ring. Um, And then that kind of became like a little bit of an obsession with behavior in general. And then um, I went away to college and I'd had some friends in high school that had worked for as puppy raisers for some of the big, big organizations. And that was super interesting to me. And I kind of wanted to do it. And then I went away to college and I decided that was like the perfect time to do it. Cause why wouldn't you raise a puppy in the dorms with you when you're a sophomore in college? <laughs> what else could you possibly be doing with your time <laughs> your life? So, um, I started puppy raising for a major organization in college and got really interested in service dogs doing that. Um, and, and it was, it was a pretty significant interest pretty quickly. I, I, I knew pretty readily that that was something I really, really wanted to do. And then just, you know, whether it's fate or whatever you believe, um, I became disabled myself, um, shortly after college. And so then that certainly furthered my interest in it and, uh, started working a service dog myself while I was training both for the big org and then switched and trained for a little bit of a smaller organization and then started my own organization several years after that. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So tell us, um, tell us, I guess, like, how you kind of got into, I guess, the breeding part of this. Yeah. So I, I bred my first litter when I was 12, which is not so unusual for dog show kids. Um, most of us have mentors that are enormously generous. And so the way it usually works with dog show kids, if your family are not breeders, but are dog show people, which was the case in mine. So my family didn't breed dogs, but they had show dogs and we showed our own dogs. Um, we, I just had a lot of really enormously generous mentors that would gift me like insanely amazing dogs to let me show them. And then, um, one of my mentors, James Gray gifted me a female to co-breed with him when I was 12. So, uh, after that I was like addictedly hooked. It's my favorite thing. Like I love genetics. I love pedigrees. I love everything about what makes that happen, how you can shape both the structure of the dog and also the temperament of the dog with, um, really 
structured and well thought out breeding programs. Um, and I'm really the result of some great mentors that were enormously generous. Um, there's another really wonderful guy that um, bred whippets and also bred cattle and spent a lot of time with me talking about pedigrees and genetics when I was quite young. Um, so it was something that when I came into service dogs, I, I already felt really pretty confident in that arena. Um, and then just learned more about selecting for behavior traits over selecting for structure. And we, we still do both. Um, our service dogs are, are pretty, pretty to standard, but we certainly are selecting for behavior traits for sure. So tell me about like, tell us, I guess, about like the pedigree stuff. Cause really, I don't know. I don't know a lot about all of that. So like, yeah. What, yeah so like kind of, I guess for people so it's like, who imagine know. one of those serial killer walls, you know, where they're trying to find the serial killer and they have the pictures everywhere. And then the red mm-hmm. strings going to all the pictures and it makes total sense. And like the beautiful mind of the prosecutor. But if you looked at it, it definitely looks like they're crazy. That's sort of what pedigrees <laughs> look like. Okay. Um, but the main thing that is that I you understand. Know, right. It's, it's just, it's insane. And it's a really weird thing to be super nerdy about because like most people don't care that much about it, but I could talk about it forever. It's my favorite thing. Um, so like, for instance, in my breeding program, I'm completely planned out for the next five generations, like totally done planned out. I know exactly what I'm doing and where I'm going. Um, and I don't think you have to do it that way. That's just what makes my little ADHD brain happy. It makes it calm down. Um, but I think there are a lot of ways to breed ethically, just like there's a lot of ways to breed really unethically. Mm-hmm. Um, for our program, we really choose to focus a lot on longevity because we're, we're using golden retrievers. So the things that kill goldens, some of them we can test for, but um, most of it is cancer, which obviously we haven't gotten a marker for yet. So we're really interested in like 10 to 15 generation pedigrees and what the average age of death is in that pedigree. So like, for instance, my current pedigree on the litter that I, I have six week olds on the ground, and then I've got another litter plan to be bred next month. And, um, and so my average age coefficient on both those litters is about 12.6 years in a 10 generation pedigree, which we're, we're pretty thrilled with. Oh, nice. So <clears throat> you were talking about, uh, this is going to lead me to other questions. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> you were talking about like ethical and unethical breeding. So like, I guess, what do you consider ethical versus unethical? Yeah, breeding? it's a, It's a great question. I think we're all products of where we came from and what our experience is. So I think living in the deep South certainly really shapes my view on what ethical breeding is and isn't because there's nothing that's going to change the fact that our shelters are full and there are dogs that are euthanized for space every day. And that's, that's a fact of the deep South as a whole, but certainly Alabama as an individual. Um, So a big probably the biggest piece for me is I want to be sure that I am producing dogs that have a purpose and fit a need beyond what a lovely dog from a shelter could do. And, and that doesn't mean that the shelter dog isn't capable of doing that or couldn't do it in a unicorn scenario, but like for our service dog program, 
I feel pretty confident in the ethical decision to be breeding purpose-bred dogs for that. I also feel pretty ethical in the, in the decision as a whole to focus on heritage breeding in general, preserving breeds and breed types, as long as those breeds and breed types are healthy and make good pets and are long lived and those types of things. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think ethics can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. My ethics on breeding is certainly going to be different than someone that maybe has um, a more drivey sport that they're breeding for like bite work. It's just going to be a different set of ethics because we have different goals in those ethics. And I don't think one is worse or better. But when I think about responsible breeding, I think about dogs that are healthy and happy throughout the entire process. So from birth to the few years that they're actually being used for whelping for the girls and then longevity for the boys, because they usually are used for quite a bit longer. And then um, making sure that that there is actually a need for the dogs that you're using for whatever your purpose is, whether that's confirmation or service dogs or sports, but that there's also readily available homes for the dogs that aren't used for that purpose. So like if I have a litter of 12 puppies, I'm unlikely to keep 12 service dogs at a time just because of the size and funding of my program. So it's really important to me that the ones that we choose not to use for the program are going to make pretty readily, easily accessible pets for people, dogs that are good for the average human being to have as a pet. I was going to ask you just because I'm curious, what is like, what's the average age that a dog is, uh, tends to be used for, for breeding? Yeah. So the boys, um, so in the generally, like the, the generally thought of that's the whole word that didn't come out of my mouth. The general thought process that is agreed upon is that two years old is when you know that your health testing is really pretty relevant. Mm -hmm. So it's uncommon um, in an ethical program to breed prior to two years old. Now, could there be some crazy except sure, but in general, there aren't exceptions to that. Like two years old is when you start because that's when your genetic health testing is pretty predictive. Um, So you start at two and then the boys are, I mean, they can breed till forever. Mm-hmm. So um, they, they can be used as frequently or infrequently as you want, really, as long as they are alive and healthy. Um, as long as, you know, obviously semen count matters and things like that. So oh yeah, we have to drink. Um, so, <laughs> um, but yeah, for, for the most part, like McCallan is eight and, and he'll do we need a, like a bell or something. We need right, like I know, a bell. Like, like, <clears throat> we're going to like Pavlov ourselves. Um, so, but yeah, so he's eight and he's still certainly siring litters, no problem. But the girls, so that's actually changed. So my reproductive veterinarian, who is who I get my advice from because they're a vet and I'm not. Um, so we go to reproductive specialists for most of our needs for our breeding dogs so it used to be for, for my whole life that you bred girls maybe starting at two years old and then you'd skip a season and breed a season. And for people who are listening that might not understand the estrus cycle of a dog, dogs are only able to be bred every six months for the average dog. So it's the opposite of people. So when your dog is bleeding is when they can be bred. And when they're not bleeding, they can't be bred. So it's it's a little bit different than the function of humans, which a lot of people don't know. So important to say. I had I had a client who. Uh, yeah, like that. a lot of I, people don't know. Yeah, like I had a client. He goes, 
He goes, yeah, he got on top of her, but luckily she had her period. So everything's good. Oh, and I'm like, no. no, everything's no, not, everything's what do not you mean? good. She, and he's like, he's like this, you know, one of these old school Italians. He's like, what do you mean? It's fine. She's got a period. I said, no, it's not fine. <laughs> and he's like, and then like, he just didn't understand. And then when I finally explained it to him, he's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So a Rottweiler, Rottweiler, uh, Corso. Oh, no. Well, I mean, at least they're pretty. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So it used to be that you'd you'd breed your your bitch at maybe two, and then you skip a season, breed a season, skip a season, breed a season. And depending on the individual female, like how fit she is and those types of things, um, you might breed her till she's six. But they've recently changed that, like not super recently, but in the last several years, that um, the re- the recommendations from most reproductive vets now are that you breed every season and just less. So our choice is to follow kind of what's what my reproductive vet feels are best practices, which is we breed every season four times and then we're done. Um, and it doesn't mean that we will breed every single one four times, but we certainly won't breed more than four times. But it also means that um, that the girls are pregnant pretty frequently um but then they're completely finished by the time they're four so then they can be retired and go on to live whatever life they're going to do doing the things they're doing so um like one of my current uh girls right now is almost finished with her breeding um and then she is already fully trained as a service dog and will go on to work because her breeder caretaker needs it works a service dog currently who's retiring so she will go and take a retirement place. And that's been planned since she was quite young. Most of our girls retire and just become couch potatoes and live happy lives with breeder caretakers. Do you spay them once they're like, once you're done? For yeah. So that's a, that's a super hot topic right there. Um, so we bum, do, bum, bum. Um, but it's just like spay neuter without breeding dogs. The, the opinions within the veterinary community are vast. So I certainly have uh, a lot of colleagues that are really well-respected breeders that I deeply respect who choose to do ovarian spaying spays, ovarian sparing spays after their girls are finished um, for the same reason that you might do it on a dog that isn't bred. Um, Most will spay to some extent, either a full hysterectomy spay or an ovarian spaying sparing spay. Um, and, And I, I'm not, I'm not married to the way we're doing it now. Um, currently, we do full spays on our ladies when they're finished, but um, but I, I could be readily swayed by data on that. So the dog's trying to figure. I know. Out I how see. To get she's, out. She's, like, oh, she's found it. There was a little opening behind the gate. She's like, "How do I get out of here?" <laughs> but yeah, so um, I would say the spay debate after breeding dogs is as vast in breeding dogs as it is in non-breeding dogs. It's, it's a, it's a pretty vast discussion on what is and isn't done. Mm-hmm. So I want to know, like jumping into breeding and like ethical breeding for pet dogs, what Aside from, like, I know I'm going to ask, of course, I'm going to ask, like, what should a dog owner look for, et cetera, et cetera. But I really want to know what should the dog trainer know for their client? Because we all get 
a client who is looking either for a second dog or their dog, you know, their dog maybe passes and they want to get another dog. Or, you know, I know for me, I have clients who have dogs with behavior issues uh, who may have to be put to sleep for uh, serious issues or the dog just passes and the owners want something totally different than what they had before. And so I get the question a lot and there are things I know, but I'm always, there are things that I don't know that I wish I knew. Um, and then I usually reach out to people like you to help, you know, kind of navigate that. Like you helped me with one of my clients recently. Um, and so I kind of am curious, like what should the trainer know to look for when helping a client, like find that, that good family pet? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think like as a trainer, right? That's our perfect client, right? We want that client that comes and finds us and asks them what they should get before they get it. Like, I think that's the dream. Um, and so yeah. I love, I love my clients that do that. And I do find it to be, at least in my practice, most common uh, after behavioral euthanasia, right? Is because they're so terrified of having that same trauma repeated. So they're, they really want like the perfect puppy, which can open up a whole nother complicated discussion about the existence of that and that expectation. But, um, so I think, you know, I'm pretty open-minded as far as purebreds or mixed breeds. And so I tend to use the term purpose, like purposefully bred or, um, like that the mating was done on purpose to produce pets, um, or working dogs or whatever. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a purebred breeding rate. We all have flyball mixes. We all have doodles, things like that. Um, so I kind of lump those all together. So like dogs that are bred on accident. So, and then dogs that are bred on purpose. So when I'm looking at dogs that are bred on purpose, um, I'm pretty interested in what the breed club has to say. So it's always a good place to start. So you're going to start from a confirmation bias, um, not like a, <laughs> like a confirmation show dog bias, not confirmation bias. That was fun. Um, and so if you start with the breed club, that's going to be how it's geared is for people that are looking at structurally sound dogs. But my experience as a whole has been that show dog dogs tend to also be relatively behaviorally sound because dog shows are a pressure environment. So um, I start with the breed club because most breed clubs have a list of health testing for that breed, which is super important on the breed club website. So all the breed clubs in the United States are called like Golden Retriever Club of America, Bichon Club of America, you know, Whippet Club of America. So if you just Google that, you're going to pop up the breed club website. And it's always a good place to at least begin because there's usually a whole tab on there on health information. So you can click on that and see what that breed needs to be health tested for that is known to be genetically carried in that breed. And each breed is going to have a variation. So for instance, like Golden Retrievers, we test for eye health because they're prone to a number of eye conditions, um, but most commonly cataracts and something that's called golden retriever uveitis. So we check eyes. Hearts are a huge deal in goldens, right? We have a lot of cardiac issues in goldens. So making sure that they're genetically tested for heart conditions. And then, of course, we have the dysplasias, right? Because they're retrievers. So hip dysplasia and elbow dysplasia. And the breed club list kind of tells you what you need to look for. But that can be very different than, say, what you need to check for on a Doberman which has an additional list and maybe some things they don't have to check for because they're not prone in the breed or like a whippet, which is a generally 
quite healthy breed and needs less health testing because they just don't have as much issues. So like uh, hip x-rays and elbow x-rays are pretty uncommon in whippets. There's not a lot of dysplasia in the breed. So the breed cup website's a really great place to start to at least get your feet up under you. And then I'm a big fan of like finding somebody that knows more about the breed than you. So like if I, I recently had a client that um, they had uh, done a behavioral euthanasia on their dog. And so they were really quite weary and they were a little bit traumatized, but they wanted a heritage breed. So they wanted a breed that was relatively rare and they wanted a dog that was super pro-social and like, wasn't going to have some of the challenges that they've had with their previous dog, which was quite aggressive to both dogs and people. So um, we started looking through breed lists and, you know, it's like on and on. Well, they really fell in love with um, <laughs> field spaniels. Well, I, I don't know very much at all about field spaniels, like other than seeing them at dog shows my whole life. And like, yeah, they're pretty and they've always seemed nice, but I don't know anything about them. So that was absolutely a phone a friend scenario for me. I called a couple of my pro handler friends and I was like, hey, what do you know about field spaniels? Who do you know that's breeding good field spaniels and getting at least some ideas. And I think a really great option is the the first contact you make doesn't need to be local to you. That breeder will know somebody local to you. So if you can find somebody, anyone in the country that knows something about this breed and has a breeder contact that's breeding really nice ones. If you shoot an email and say, hey, you know, I'm a dog trainer. I have this client. They really want one of these breeds. Do you know of ethical breeders in my area? As long as you start with the first ethical breeder, it's usually pretty easy to get where you need to go on that. The other thing is that, you know, websites can be helpful, but just like everything on the internet, you you just can't believe everything you read. So unless it's linking to genetic health testing, so it's actually giving you the hyperlink to the actual health testing um, I'm going to at least do some further research on that. So I'm going to email the breeder, call the breeder, have my client do that and say, hey, can you can you actually send me the health testing? Because that's getting more and more common as people are getting more and more educated on how to select a really well-bred dog. Um, less ethical breeders are just claiming that their dogs are health tested and saying they had all the things done and they didn't. So, but yeah, starting with that one person that knows something. So like, um, you know, if, if I, if I had a client that just had their heart set on a Malinois, I certainly wouldn't be making that selection. I would be making a few phone calls to figure out what kind of Mali breeders can go to, because that's not the type of dog that I generally work with. Um, we, uh, we recently had someone comment that some of our questions are very unorganized. So this, this one goes out to them. Hi. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, I'm going to all over the place here. Ready guys? But no, I kidding. think they gave us a five star review though. Yeah, right? they still gave us five stars. So thanks for that. Um, we're, <laughs> we're trying, we're working on it. So at any time, just stop me if I'm wrong. It sounds like. The the three basic things we're looking at is the health of the dog. Mm -hmm. And then depending if it's like show line or not, the looks of the dog. And then the dog's ability to complete a task, like whatever that dog was bred for. Right. So I think that's great. I would definitely say that whether you're interested in show lines or not, the structure of the dog is vitally important because form follows function. Or function follows form. Structure meaning the way it looks for someone that might right, matter. Right, right. Yeah. The, the physical appearance of the dog, it always matters. So it may uh -huh. not matter that it looks like the breed standard, 
necessarily depending on what you want, right? Like if I'm, um, if I'm looking for like a really amazing fly ball prospect, the breed standard for a border collie may not at all be the border collie, like the AKC breed standard may not be what I'm looking for in a fly ball border collie or certainly in a herding border collie necessarily. Um, I, I, I have lots of feelings about that, that we can talk about later, but, um, but structure does matter. Like if, if that angulation matters, layout of the back matters, length of back matters on things like how long can that dog work efficiently? And sometimes it works against the breed standard. There are certainly breeds where there are many opinions that breed standards are in conflict with the function of that breed. Um, and, and I'm certainly. So that's what I wanted to, that's where I, I wanted to kind of go with the question was like, so I feel like then if you break that down, you have, and again, correct me if I'm completely wrong, because this is somewhere I'm, I'm definitely not well versed in at all is, so you have one group of people that are very into the form or the way the dog looks. And you have one other group that's very into like how the dog performs. Do you feel like one of those groups more than the other without throwing anyone under the bus? And if you don't (laughs) want to touch it, maybe not will be more willing to sacrifice health in order to get what they're actually looking for. Like, ah, you know what? This dog might die at age eight, but he's going to be really good at this sport. Or is it more likely that like, wow, like this dog's not going to last that long or like, or maybe like this dog is going to be aggressive, but damn, he looks really good. Or do you not see that? Is it even on both? And I'm thinking like for someone that's just like trying to get a dog, is it safer to go one route or the other considering that like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, is no, it that's safer a fantastic to just get a show question. line? Is it just safer because you're like less likely to get a wild, you know what I mean? Like, oh, this dog's really good at this sport, but like, it's going to be a nut. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a great question and a really important one. And I think one that like is my, like, like when I'm hanging out with my breeder friends, that's the question we talk about, like all the time. This is the thing that like we get into because I do think that confirmation people as a whole are more likely to if the dog is just stunning (laughs) and its hip score is like "Eh." but the dog is just like the most beautiful one you've ever seen certainly there's well-documented cases of of that that being shown to high success and bred heavily um, and we see it all the time. And, um, you know, it's like, I don't think it's beneficial for anyone to throw like individuals under the bus, but anybody that's in dog shows is absolutely either just green in the sport or just not being honest with themselves or with you. If they say that of the top 25 dogs of all time, some of them had some meaningful health issues that were overlooked because they were just so stunning. Yeah, that absolutely happens. In the same way, as someone that doesn't come from a heavy background of dog sports, a big question that I always have is so, so if you're breeding this super drivey dog for whatever, right, for herding, for bite sport, for agility, for fly ball, whatever it is that you're doing it for, and you have a litter of 12, and you don't have 12 sport homes, what pet home matches that dog like what average pet person can that dog function in in a really meaningful way and I think 
when I've talked about it with my more sporty friends that are breeding that way, we do discuss it a lot that, you know, maybe they breed a little bit less frequently. Whereas I almost never have to worry about leftover puppies because turns out that puppies that were bred for service dogs, like just kind of go wherever into homes pretty successfully because we're breeding (laughs) low drive and high biddability. Um, But I think that that is really important. And I think it's really important to think about in a meaningful way, regardless of what you're breeding for. And in the same way, when I was breeding um, in confirmation, I was breeding less popular breeds, right? I was breeding uh, whippets before, you know, they're more popular now, but like when I started in whippets, everybody just thought they were small greyhounds. Like nobody knew what they were. Like you said, it was a whippet and people were like, what? And people would stop you on the street and ask you why you're starving your dog. It was just, they just are more, much more popular now than they used to be. And so it was an ethical consideration of like, okay, so if I breed this whippet because I want another show dog or whatever it is that I'm doing, or I want to breed these dogs together because I bred them, do I have enough pet homes for whippets? Like, is there enough interest in that? And then, you know, with Italian greyhounds and chihuahuas, when I was breeding those, you know, there's a lot of questions about that, that I think are really important. Um, and I do think, I think that there are people that, and I'm one of these people, I love to win, like um, winning is my favorite, um, whatever it is, I just like to win. And so I do think it's, it's really important to have excellent mentors that will tell you the truth. And a lot of them from a lot of different viewpoints and thought processes, so that if you end up in a situation where the most beautiful dog you've ever bred or the most successfully driven dog you've ever bred doesn't get the score on the health clearance that you want, that they can either talk you up or talk you down depending on the individual situation. Does that make sense? Because, and we call it kennel blindness and it's a real thing, right? If you live with that dog and you've worked 10 years to get that breeding, right? I told you earlier in the talk that I have the next five generations planned out. Well, I can assure you if I get to that fifth generation that I have been working for, for years, I mean, a decade and I, and, and genetics happen and they don't go the way that I think that they will. And my pedigree planning just for whatever reason, wasn't predictive. I'm going to need mentors that are going to yank a knot in my tail and say, Hey, this is, this didn't work. This didn't do what you wanted it to do. It doesn't matter how long it took you to get here. And I think we all need that, whether we're breeding dogs or competing with dogs or whatever we're doing with dogs, you need that mentor or that friend to say, hey, I I don't think your dog loves that right now, or I don't think this is best for what's happening, or maybe you need to take a break or step back. And I I think having a community around you that, that you're accountable to, but that also will talk you off the ledge when maybe you get there and you shouldn't be. Um, cause I've certainly been there too, where I'm like, well, I just don't know if I should breed this dog. And like my, my, my group of people will be like, you're insane. This is a lovely dog. You better breed it. And you know, you need, you need it on both sides. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. No, that was perfect. So what is, what is the advantage that you would say that you offer like if I just closed my eyes and picked up 10 golden retrievers off the street versus I took 10 dogs of yours and you couldn't pick which 10 just random right I know it's a hard question but like like how much of an advantage am I getting so I think you're getting the advantage of data because you're not necessarily getting the advantage 
of of predictability outside of what the data suggests, right? Because mm-hmm. there's no way that I can say, oh yeah, for sure, if I breed this dog to this dog, it won't have hip dysplasia. No one can say that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. anyone that says they can say that doesn't fully understand genetics. So that would be like a red flag. <laughs> right. And it's not mixing paint. Well, and it may just be that they just don't fully understand genetics, not that they're lying. Yeah, to yeah, 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 understand yeah. it. And I don't yeah. pretend to be a geneticist. So please don't hear me say that I fully understand genetics because that's crazy. Because <laughs> um, I don't. But so you're I, a genetic I, specialist is what you're saying. Right. Exactly. Like <laughs> I can breed a mouse colony and get complete predictability because that's what I do. Um, yeah. But I think you're getting data and you're getting things that the data suggests. So like, for instance, I drive a Subaru. Um, The data suggests that my Subaru is very safe in a crash and that my Subaru will be on the road longer than most other brands of cars and that my Subaru will have less maintenance, but the maintenance it needs will be more expensive. That is what the data suggests about my Subaru, which is why I bought a Subaru. Now, could my Subaru have been a lemon of all the Subarus? Sure, that's possible. And, and I had this mentor years and years ago that used to tell me she, so it, it, and I'll tell, I'll tell it on myself. I was a teenager. We had looked at a litter of puppies that another breeder that I really respected had, it was 30 years ago. And, um, one of the puppies had a blue eye and in this particular breed, it's a pretty serious fault. And, um, and we were walking away and I looked at my mentor who was in her, 60s or 70s and I um and in that way that only like 16 year old assholes can do it you know just just (laughs) that channel your inner 16 year old girl and I said I just can't believe that they bred a puppy with a blue eye and my mentor snatched me up and she goes if you haven't done it you just haven't been doing it long enough Mm. and she used to say that a lot about a lot of different things that if you haven't produced it good or bad you just haven't been doing it long enough and that's because the data is, is only, it suggests what is likely. So could I absolutely produce a golden retriever that has cardiac? Sure. Yeah. Any second. And that's why breeding isn't for the faint of heart. It's heartbreaking all the time. It's exhausting. Now, my particular line of golden retrievers, we have other issues that we really work around and we're careful about. We don't have instances of cardiac in the last many, many generations, but could I? Sure. It's a golden retriever. And it's also like a living thing. Like, yeah, of course I could produce it, but my data would suggest that statistically 10 goldens from my program may be less likely to have cardiac disease than 10 goldens from some other situation. Um, and the same thing with hip dysplasia or anything. And that's true of any breed. And it's not that we're doing it perfectly because we are certainly not, nor is anyone. Um, but I think knowing it, the data also suggests that my goldens will live to be at least 12 years old. That is what the data suggests. Now, am I, I'm absolutely a hundred percent confident that I will have premature death in my golden retriever program for sure. I can tell a hundred percent, I'm sure it will happen, but statistically, hopefully not very frequently. And hopefully our average stays quite high. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Hey, I have a question about, so sort of, sort of on this, but maybe not really. 
So the golden deceiver. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to give a shout out to John Imler. He's the one who told me about that one. I like it. Oh, the golden deceiver, the dog that like the golden retriever who everyone thinks is the golden retriever and it deceives them because it's very aggressive and dangerous. Sure. Yeah. We see them all the time in our behavior practice. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> I don't, now I will say not all the time. We see them significantly statistically less than some other breeds, but yeah, yeah. several. Why is that? Because it is a breed that stands out to me when aggression is apparent. It's horrible. Like I would agree with when you, you yeah. see a golden that is displaying aggression it is serious it's pretty explosive yeah yeah like it's i, would agree I mean that, like sure. the like I, I i mean like i have seen some of the most serious resource guarders or bites from guarding mm-hmm. from golden retrievers i'm curious to know curious so to there's know, a like, lot why. of different theories on that i'm i'm a big like a huge believer personally, like my personal bias to this is that I absolutely think behavior is predominantly genetic. That is my own personal opinion. That's how I tend to view my lens of behavior as a whole. And certainly in my breeding program is that it's pretty significantly genetic and it is the other big piece is neonatal development. So like birth to 12 weeks, I think is enormously significant and the rest is less significant. Not that it's not significant, it's just less than the other two pieces. So I don't think it's like an even pie. That's my personal opinion. Um, I also think that golden retrievers are prone to some health issues that can exacerbate aggression when they're present because hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, very painful. Um, you know, there are things, uh, juvenile cataracts are relatively common in the breed, which can certainly affect guarding behavior and things like that. I think ultimately you can't take away the fact that it's a gun dog and gun dogs that resource guard as a whole tend to be pretty, pretty confident and committed to their resource guarding behavior, right? Cocker Spaniels, English Springer Spaniels. And I think we sometimes forget that like Spaniels are gun dogs and retrievers are gun dogs. And, um, and so I think some of those are, still genetic, even, even individually, just as a breed phenotype. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's the same reason that, you know, we get golden retrievers that are super aggressive the same way that like, sometimes we get border collies that don't herd, or sometimes we get Malinois that are really shit at bite sport. Like it. And that ultimately is, I think, generally bred on or, or based on breeding and genetics, right? It's, it's, I can assure you while, while I'm confident in the fact that dogs that produced my dog. So you go back, you know, two or three generations, I'm really confident that those dogs would absolutely get hunt titles. I have no idea if my dogs can hunt, like, like maybe like genetically, they probably should. They have a lot of title dogs in their pedigree, but like, I don't know. And I think it's if we're looking at genetics on other behaviors, I think we should treat it similarly to the good behaviors, like the bad behaviors. I've noticed that with the guarding, uh, like, or the, the, not even just the guarding, the, the, 
golden retrievers that tend to display more aggression i have always found them to have the more red color mm-hmm. which uh to my understanding is more of the field bred so uh, the show lines come right? in all the colors for sure um and the field lines do too but the body type is tends to be quite different from field dogs to yeah. show dogs and golden retrievers and in most breeds um like my anecdotal evidence on this and my behavior practice is that the ones that are explosive tend to have the skinnier heads. Mm-hmm. I have no idea if that's true or not, but I can tell you in my practice tends to be true. Not yeah, always. That's what I seem to notice that the they're lighter, they're lighter boned. They're a little narrower in general. Um, mm-hmm. Now, could that be because I'm practicing behavior in one state in one area for sure it could just be that the breeders that are producing aggression produce that kind of a dog and there could be like a lot of bias in that thought process but I I think in general like if you sit around and ask 20 trainers what an aggressive golden retriever looks like I think most of them would say that that tends to be true Mm -hmm. um and I don't know why that is other than the fact that I think genetics are sticky Meaning that if you're producing one thing on purpose, you're producing five, five, 10, 15 things on accident. So like if I'm producing a dog with a big fat wide back skull, because I think it's really pretty and squishy, then I am probably producing any number of things that are also attached to a big wide back skull in structure or in personality or in health that, that are all also chained into that that particular selection so then going back to like your service dogs that you're breeding you were saying about like do you know they you know they i don't know if they know how to hunt they should because they're a gun dog but that doesn't mean that they know so i'm curious like do you at this point with what you're breeding or if not at this point, maybe in that five generation mark, do you feel like the dogs that you're breeding sort of know? And I say, I know this may get taken out of context, but do you feel like they're going to sort of know their job as a service dog? Like, do you think maybe epigenetically or something like that they'll, it'll be imprinted to some degree? Like I have this conversation a lot with one of my friends for agility because like with my adult dog journey it was like he came out of the box knowing what Mm -hmm. agility was like and and that was he was bred for the purpose of doing that whereas this this little pain in the ass behind me here wasn't (laughs) bred for that she was bred on a farm she was her mom was from australia her dad was bred on a cattle farm like just totally different she hates agility Mm -hmm. hates it hates it but is serious with hurting so i'm curious i'm just curious do you do you feel that way with your dogs that you're breeding that they kind of know what yeah i definitely i definitely feel that way and then i believe in purpose breeding genetically in general right i think dogs that come from dogs that are really good herders tend to be really good herders, particularly if you're starting to stack generations, right? You're not talking about that dog's parents were good herders. You're talking about that dog's parents, grandparents, great grandparents, great, great grandparents were great herders. Mm -hmm. The likelihood of that dog being a good herder is pretty, pretty huge. 
I think where the question comes that I, that I often ponder myself. So good question. Cause I don't know. Um, is I, you know, I think when we talk about like instinct-based behaviors, right? Like hurting or pointing, or maybe even like apprehension biting, depending on the breed or any number of those, like those are, um, those have been developed over hundreds or thousands of years for certain breed types. And when we're talking about service dogs, like we're talking about something that maybe has been developed over 50 years, maybe, maybe Mm -hmm. 75 or a hundred, depending on what we're really looking at. And if we, if we're separating guide dogs from non-guide dogs as service dogs, I mean, those things matter, but, um, so I do have some question about like, how quickly does that become like instinctually born into that dog? I will tell you this just again, from my own breeding program and the breeding programs of my colleagues that are similar to mine. When my puppies open their eyes and begin to orient, they do it differently than my Whippet puppies did, or then maybe even other golden retriever litters that I know that aren't from service dog specific uh, focuses in those programs. Like my puppies are much more eye contact focused from a much, much younger age. And, and, you know, the big joke at my program with my staff is that it's, it's like cheating. Like they kind of come out of the box and you're like, Oh, there it is. Just don't mess it up and it'll, it'll be fine. Like as long as you don't ruin it, it's, it'll, it'll probably be a service dog. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that we are producing dogs. The other thing that I see really a lot in my program and other similar breeding programs to mine for service dog work is this kind of um, desensitization, like genetic desensitization to like threat gestures and squishing. Like my Goldens love threat gestures. Like they, like, the more you pet them on the top of the head and squish them and like squish their little cheeks and like hug them, like they're like, cool. Like not the normal responses that you would get from like, like the average, normal, healthy, wonderful pet dog. Ours have less of it. I don't know if they have less of it because we have been selecting for that trait for a few generations. I don't know if it's because we use puppy culture and our, in our rearing protocol. And we are just really in their faces from the get go. I, I mean, I do have questions about that. that I don't have answers to, but my, my own personal bias is that I do think it's genetic, at least a red, big. Bit. And what red flags should a trainer or even a dog owner, like what should you gave us like things to look for? What are red flags that we should be looking for? So I'm, like I'm I, pretty... I, I want to just say like you, like, for example, a few weeks ago, when I reached out to you with that uh, client who ended up getting that uh, Bernese mountain dog, um, mm-hmm. who's amazing, by the way. Oh, amazing. yay. Yeah, Send amazing. I'm so happy for that. I family, love burner but... puppies. They're the cutest. <laughs> it's so cute. The dog's like looking out the window next to the child. The child's one. Right. You know, they're, they're just both looking out the window together. Like they're the same exact height when the dog stands up. It's so freaking adorable. Oh, I love that. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but like what, what, um, you know, you, I sent you a website that I wanted you to see. 
uh, like, let me know what your thoughts were. And the first one I sent you, you were like, whoa, a lot of red flags. And then right. the second one I sent you, you were like, this is the one. You right. Know? Yeah. So, so um, the first thing I look at, um, it, it's not that different than picking a dog trainer, really. Like, it seems like a mystery until you know how to do it, right? How do you, how do you, how can you look at your colleague's website and know whether it's a good trainer or a bad trainer? Like, not even about like methodology, just whether they know anything. <laughs> and it's so once you know how to do it, it's, it's like, it's Open not a hard. can of worms. Why don't you? Open I will. Can of worms. So, um, but yeah, so the, the first thing I look at is kind of like, you know, I always read the about me page. Cause I'm like, why did you begin breeding dogs? And usually like a ton of your clues are in there. So you read the about me and like, I do want to say these are generalities, right? There are unicorns and everything. There are exceptions to every rule. So I'm going to preface this before I get like all the hate mail about this. So but generally speaking, like you want the about me to relatively clearly state like the purpose of their program and the purpose of their program, a hundred percent valid can be to produce lovely pet dogs. That is a purpose and a valid purpose and a needed purpose. But like, if it's like, I got a golden retriever and he was the best dog ever. So then we bought a female golden retriever and now we have fluffy golden retriever farms kennels. Like, okay, I'm less, less feeling less comfortable with that reasoning is that you had a single dog that you really loved. And so you decided to breed him is usually not one of my favorite reasons to breed a dog. Um, because I'm very interested in like, okay, well, that's great that that one dog was awesome. But what were his parents like? What were his grandparents like? What were his great grandparents like? What is the genetic health testing on five to 10 generations look like? How long did they live? The, what did they die from? Like, I'm interested in those things. Again, because to me, for my own ethics, if I'm going to help a client select a dog that was bred on purpose, there needs to be a reason for that, for them to have made that decision instead of going to the shelter to get a dog like there needs to be a reason and to me that reason needs to be that there is data that suggests something that is important to that family and so um so I'm interested in that and then the next thing I do is I go and look at their like dogs page where it's like what their dogs are and what their names are and you know their health testing and that's almost always where you where you are like oh this isn't going to work out and so in that one that you sent me is the about me page was a little bit like hey we got a dog and we really loved it and so then we got another one and now we have fluffy dog farms kennels and um and so I was like eh. so I went and looked at the dog page and what there was um was the dog's name and that was, a, and then it was like, oh, he's so sweet and he loves kids and those things, which is fine. Like you can have those things on your, about your dog's page. That's, and, and you should, but like, where's the link to his pedigree? Where's the link to his health testing? Where's the link to his pedigree's health testing? And, and, and why isn't it readily accessible to me? Because it's all the databases are online now. Like they're pretty readily accessible. And if you don't want to link to them, that's fine. Then take the time to type them out and put them on your page. Um, if you're going to have a website. Now I'm the first to say I don't have a website for my reading program. So everybody gets to me on word of mouth because I'm, because I'm lazy and I don't do. Um, but 
ultimately, <laughs> if you're going to do a website, the purpose of the website is to inform people. And then I'm usually pretty interested in like available puppies is another one where I look at red flags. Like if I'm seeing lots of puppies available, I'm starting to think like, well, okay, why, why is that? Why isn't there a waiting list? If we know that dogs can only be bred every six months and litter size is relatively unpredictable, really hard to not have a waiting list. Like it, it can be done and it can be done ethically, but it's hard. And so I'm interested in that. I'm also, and I want to say this carefully, I'm interested if I'm seeing a lot of different breeds. So it's not that excellent breeders can't breed more than one breed. Of course they can. And they often do. But if I'm seeing like lots of breeds, especially lots of popular breeds, like all together on one website, I'm like, "Mm, what's our goal here? And I also want to be really clear that I, and I'm going to get, oh God, I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to do this because I am a hundred percent pro breeding for profit. Like I have no problem with that. Breeding dogs is a full-time job and you have to take time away from your other job to do it really, really well. And you should make money because you are not making money to do it. So like I take four weeks of paternity leave minimum for every litter I breed. So I at least have to make up the difference of the outside the home clients I would be seeing during that four week time or else how can someone ethically breed dogs when they can't at least at at least break even on what they're doing and and I don't have an ethical problem at all for breeding for profit if it's if it's your full-time job to do that and you're spending full-time hours doing it really well I don't have any problem with that but when I'm looking at profit only based breeding I'm starting to get a little bit concerned because breeding them well is extremely expensive and it's unpredictably expensive. So if I'm interested in my bottom line over ethical breeding, breeding dogs is unpredictably expensive. So like I might make money on one litter and lose a fortune on the last. So like my last litter that I have on the ground, they're six weeks old. They're amazing. Phenomenal. Took a bath y'all. Like I am so upside down in that litter, which is fine because I have other litters that can make me break even in the long run, which is all I care about right now. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard to do it. And I think sometimes breeders get villainized saying, oh, your puppies are so expensive and you're making a profit and you shouldn't. I don't think that's true. It's It's okay to make a profit if you're doing it ethically. But yeah, so those are the red flags. I'm interested in the website. Um, I'm interested in health testing. I'm interested also like once it's time to actually talk to the breeder, I'm interested in certain questions. Like, um, like I think it's completely fine to say, so of, of the dogs that you know in your pedigree, tell me a common problem that you're always aware of before you breed a dog. Like what's something that you know is in your pedigree that you're actively trying to improve upon or avoid. Like that's a fair question to ask any breeder and they should be able to readily answer it and to say, okay, so what's one thing that you really love about your breeding program that you're trying to breed more of? That's a really great question because all I'm looking for is, do you know your breed? And some breeds are way harder to breed than others. I mean, you look at heritage Doberman breeders and talk about breeders that are just fighting a very, very complicated battle with the genetics of the breed right now. 
And there are lots of things that they are just actively avoiding. And there are things they're trying to improve upon. And, and I have a huge amount of respect for the Doberman breeders that are really trying desperately to save the heritage of the breed because there's so many issues, much harder than Golden's. Much, is certainly much harder than than other breeds. And there are several breeds like that. So I think that's a fair question. There's not every breed where you're going to say, oh yeah, my you know 10 generation average death age is 12.6. Now there are some breeds that's not going to be true at all. And that's okay as long as they know it. What are other important questions someone should ask? Like I always, one thing I always coach a client to ask is like find out what the dog is being like, what the purpose of the dog is being bred for. Yeah. Because like, you know, Vinny and I've talked about this, I think before, like he's got his, his lab lab is, is a field bred lab. And a lot of people just assume a lab is a lab Mm -hmm. and that's it. But field bred lab is so different than like the average pet lab that everyone is assuming is what they're getting. And so like, that's one thing I always coach people to ask is like, find out what their purpose is being bred for. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where like that about page on the breeder website. So helpful. Like, are they breeding primarily for show and confirmation? It usually says so. You can also usually tell by the pictures on their website, right? If every lab on the website has a duck in its mouth, (laughs) <laughs> probably a field bred lab. Um, if every dog on the website is in a win photo at a dog show, probably a show bred lab, you know, but it's the in-between breeders, which are usually not usually, but often wonderful breeders to ask. So what do you, what are you trying to produce? Like, what do you like to do with these dogs? What do you do with them? Do you hunt with them? Do you do dock diving? Do you do agility? What do you do with the dog? And see if it matches what you want to do with the dog. And also just ask. Um, I actually had a, a I have several colleagues that get puppies for me that are professional trainers. And um I have one that I don't think has made the announcement that she's getting one, so I don't want to name the person. So uh, but she asked me, she said, Well, if I wanted to do sports with this dog, would they be good at it? And I said, well, I think it depends on what good at it means. Like, yeah, I I think you could readily title one of my Goldens in most obedience and agility type sports. I think you could readily get titles. But if your goal is to have a high end trial obedience golden retriever, probably not my program. Like, it's just not the right program for you. You want a dog that has a lot more oomph than my breeding program has and a lot more drive into work than what my breeding program has. Um, you know, like if you want a dog that's like, when in doubt, take a nap, I am your girl. Like I've got that dog for you, but some people find that really frustrating. Like, like that's like, that's a temperament that I find quite lovely, but that some people are like, Oh yeah, he just sits there. I'm like, yeah, he just sits there. And now if you ask him to do something, he'll get up and do it. But like, if nothing's happening, he's like, meh. Just take a nap. <laughs> and which I think is amazing. Like I've been watching your dog in the background. Like she has not stopped. She's been busy this Yeah, I actually time. had to put her in the crate because she's actually never this She's bad. acting like a cat tonight. Yeah, yeah. she's never <laughs> she's usually you don't even see her on the camera because she's so busy like on her stuff. But tonight she's just uh got ants yeah. in her pants. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that um McCallan is asleep in the hallway. And he's been <laughs> asleep in the hallway. 
since before we got on this call and he hasn't moved. <laughs> yeah, I, wouldn't understand. I wouldn't understand that. I don't know. What well, I have, I have a training question now that you bring that up. So in terms of training now, do you find that the dogs you breed react to training in the same way or do you find there's techniques or methods to teaching them certain things that maybe you wouldn't recommend to like just anybody but your dog specifically respond it it could just be something random like oh they're really good at luring or like they prefer shaping or they don't mind body like you said something about like they don't really mind like the touching on the face but like you know what I mean? Kind of like are sure, there things you'd be like, oh, like question. I would do this with my dogs, but like it's just mine. I don't know. Do you notice yeah. stuff like that? Yeah. So I think, you know, a big I would say probably one of the biggest focuses for me on my program is I want a really bomb proof, super resilient dog. Like that's a big thing for me. Um, and I love that and I actively select for it. Like I I want like super resilient bomb proof dogs, which I, I will say means that they're they're pretty fine with whatever kind of training you would like to put on them. They're like, Oh, sure. I guess. (laughs) Um, but I will say shaping, not, not so great because they're not quick. Like, you know, now if you really worked with them, like my golden's pretty good at shaping. Um, my female golden is really quite, quite good at shaping. She's a little smarter than the boys. Um, and, but like, what are you saying? I'm just saying in my breeding program, the girls are smarter than the boys. Um, And so, but, um, but I I will say like McCallan doesn't particularly love shaping. Like that's not a super reinforcing game for him. He would much rather be shown what to do like with luring and then name it. And then he's happy to do it. But like, if he has to figure it out himself, he it's not that he won't do it. He just finds it tedious. Like, and you can tell he's like, so can I take a nap now? Like, can I, are we done? Yeah. Like, can I take a nap yeah. now? Like, can we take a nap now? <laughs> and like with Loring, he's like, Oh, I can do this all day long. It's amazing. Um, yeah. And I would say like our dogs are less like tuggy, tuggy toy driven than some, like a field bread golden might be. Um, they like tug. It's awesome, but it's not going to be the same reinforcer, but balls. Oh, balls are a great reinforcer for my guys. And I think, you know, I don't think that has anything really that much to do with my breeding program other than just, you know, your own dogs. And I do think those are good questions to ask the breeder that you're interviewing is that that's a great question to ask a breeder that you ask Benny is like, what training methods have you, or like what, not even methods, like what, what type of training do you find your dog enjoys, your dogs enjoy the most? Because I think most breeders spend an enormous amount of time just like staring at their dogs. So they usually know. And that is a good question, especially for an owner that has a preference. Like I'm a super, super lazy dog trainer and a super lazy dog owner when it's my own animals. I'm really like super sharp with clients, but I'm like, Hey, could you maybe like think about laying down somewhere sometime like soon? And they're like, yeah, sure. Um, so I don't want a dog in my home with an enormous amount of work drive. That's not fun for me, but by the same token, like Anthony, if you came for me, like to me and said that you wanted a golden retriever, I would probably tell you to go to a different breeder. 
because I know what you like to do with your dogs. Yeah. Like, and my dogs aren't going to have as much drive as you think is fun. Like you're going to be like, this is the most boring pet I've ever had. <laughs> it's funny because like, I, it's funny because sometimes I will, it's funny when you leave a home and you're like, whoa, that was an amazing, like I have a client who's got this, um, I don't know what the hell she is like, a, have a Bouchon or something. Yeah. And like, I'm not even generally a small dog person, but this dog is so drivey and fun. Like I love training this dog. She's sharp. She is like on point. And I left today so depressed because I was like, oh my God, like I could do so much with this dog and they didn't even do their homework. Right, you know, right. and then like you go to the other client's house who's got like a dog, like what you're describing. And I leave that home and I'm like, oh my God, thank God I don't own it. <laughs> like nothing against it. A lot of people like that. It's just. No. And it's, I yeah. think that's super personality driven. Like I yeah. really love my friend's dogs that are super drivey and worky, not inside of their homes. And when I get to play with them on a training game, like, oh, fun for me. Cause it's so fast. And you're like, I am a good trainer. Um, and then, <laughs> then like, but like to live with it, it's just not my thing. That's not, that's not how my lifestyle but, goes. But I will say like the, are they, so are your dogs sort of similar to uh, Lisa's um, who you sent me to uh, Lisa Smith, I think. Is oh that? yeah. They're the same. So genetically same. identical. Yeah. 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 Cause <laughs> I mean, I've worked, I've worked with a few of her of hers after you sent that. Uh, yeah. So Lisa that. and Kathy Smith um, are the, provided the foundation dogs for our breeding program. So genetically, I mean, they, they are in essence, the same dogs. Yeah. I mean, they're, I have, I mean, the two that I've worked with from her, I mean, they're, uh, they're amazing. I mean, they definitely are like, they'll definitely hang out. They're amazing family dogs, but yeah, I mean, they do, they do enjoy, uh, they do tend to enjoy the activity that the families uh, involve them in, which is nice. Right. They're kind of like, Oh, that sounds like a great idea. That's yeah. Like when people ask <laughs> yeah. me to describe my particular dogs in my particular breeding program. I'm like, they're pretty much two things. Describe them when in doubt, take a nap. And that sounds like a great idea. Like they have, they're like, Oh yeah, sure. That sounds like a great idea. And then you're like, well, what if we did this? And so they're like, Oh, that sounds like a great idea. You know, they just don't have a lot of strong opinions other than I want to be with you and whatever we're doing sounds like a great idea. So tell me a little bit about more about resiliency and, and like why you breed for it, what you're looking for, all that type of stuff. Sure. I think, you know, for service dogs, resiliency and recovery is so vitally important because by the very nature of their work that they're in public access all the time and they, um, they're working in multiple different environments that may not be predictable. You need an enormous amount of resiliency to lots of things. And then also quick recovery from things that might be aversive to them. So like, for instance, um, my, my best friend and I go to Disney all the time. And, um, especially before the pandemic, we went like, all the time, all the time. And McAllen loves Disney. And so we were down there several years ago and um, we were watching, you know, the parade, the big Disney parade thing. Mm-hmm. And they had just gotten this new gigantic, like semi-truck size steampunk Maleficent dragon that breathed fire that went in the parade. And so 
like there's the the best benefit of being disabled is that you get disabled seating in the Disney parade. Like there's not a lot of like really great benefits to like, oh, I have a disability, but handicapped seating at the Disney parade, solid. And <laughs> and like I am your buddy, by the way, if you ever want handicapped seating at Disney, I take me. I was gonna I'm ask, so good at it. I was gonna ask that question. Yeah, it's it's like rent a friend. Um and so anyway, so that means that we're like right up on that parade route, right? Like, I mean you are on the curb. And McAllen's sleeping next to my scooter and this humongous, like, it's huge, like steampunk dragon and like the head moves up and down and it's breathing fire and roaring. And he like, he was asleep. He lifted his head, looked at it and immediately laid his head back down and went right back to sleep. Right. That's the kind of resiliency that we need in the service dog program. And we also need fast recovery because sometimes things happen that are startling that you can't help. Like, um, McCallum's absolutely had an entire plate of food dropped on him at a restaurant before, like, like the whole plate, like on him, which is startling because he's usually asleep. So you need that fast recovery from the startle. And that's for me, probably the most important behavioral trait I want really consistently in my line is that enormous amount of resiliency that not much bothers them certainly like noises and everything and I think we breed for a lot of resiliency and I think we also condition an enormous amount of resiliency in that zero to 12 week age um, where they just I mean you guys should hear my puppy sound desensitization CDs that they start or they're not CDs anymore I'm just really old Um, streaming services that are like there's this one that sounds like a feral bobcat. It's horrible. And they listen to them all the time from the time that they're born. So they're really resilient to noises. They're really resilient to touch. We tend to touch them in a way, like we said earlier with the threat gestures, like we tend to pet them on the top of the head. We tend to hold them in weird positions. We tend to hold them with, um, and this is all from birth. So it's habituation, not desensitization, which is a little interesting and different and it matters. Um, But what it turns out is that, you know, if they get startled, they tend to recover quite quickly. And if they get upset, they tend to recover quite quickly, which makes them really resilient on a lot of things. So if I'm riding my scooter and McAllen's foot gets under it and it smushes his foot, clearly that is highly aversive. But I need a quick recovery on that. And I need a dog that is like, oh better watch where my feet are and then go into it. I mean, obviously I'm not going to purposely drive over his foot with the scooter, but it happens. Those are real things that happen in service dog working life because this is the environment in which they work and they learn and they start to be, you know, we've conditioned them to wheelchairs from the time they're teeny tiny. They know how to be careful with their feet in really controlled environments, but sometimes things happen and I want a dog that recovers and is resilient quite quickly. Do you find do you think, that the, oh sorry. oh, sorry, Ben, do you want to go? Just re- you want to repeat it or I'll go or whatever. You I just can, wanna... Go ahead. Go ahead. Do you think that it would be interesting to hear input on there? You sometimes see people say like, I mean, the one side will say no breed, you know, no breed needs a heavy hand or the other side will say like, my dog responds well to this. Something that you think is so aversive like actually makes my dog thrive Mm -hmm. so my labrador if i asked him to sit and he doesn't and i were to push on his butt he'd probably start freaking out and be like why are you touching me you mad at me like what's going on like he would get all wigged out whereas like if i asked my malinois to sit 
and like I don't give him any other help he like starts getting like almost frustrated and, and amped and like 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 what what do you need dude and if I like pushed on his butt he'd be like oh you just need me to sit okay and like he'd be like relieved that I pushed on him you know what I mean? Sure, no, like I, almost I, even forcefully. Like even if I like pushed on his butt hard, like dude, sit down. Like he'd be like, "Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that's what you wanted." Yeah. And someone might look at him and be like, "Dude, you just shoved your dog. Like you just pushed your dog." You know so, what I mean? So I yeah. So like no, that you... makes total sense to me. So my my best friend is a veterinarian with a behavior exclusive practice. So um, she has this slide when she does CE that I love that is talking about reinforcers and aversives and punishers and things like that and. Um, she has this picture of a cat that's like got his little feet around the nozzle of a water bottle while it's getting squirted in his mouth. And like, he's holding it and like <laughs> sucking the water out of the water bottle. And then of yeah. course, a picture of a cat that's getting sprayed with a water bottle in a different cat, different context. And is like, you know, airplane eared out yeah. to, to me. I think it's very connected to that discussion of like, if your Malinois doesn't find pushing on him in any way shape or form to be aversive then it, he doesn't find it to be aversive it's not aversive and and also like is the behavior increasing decreasing I mean you know I mean I think that and then I guess to you because of your specialty I'm trying to see like what do you attribute any of that to genetics and, and like yeah. and that was kind of my question <laughs> before is like and I didn't think about it at the time was like like not that that's the same example, but like, do you find that like your golden retrievers, like when you push them on the butt, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, you, I so I'm just, some things, yeah. absolutely. Right. Like, so my, my, my same best friend that's a veterinarian with a behavior exclusive practice got one of my goldens as a pet several years ago. She's uh five years old this year. She'd only ever had Aussies before. Right. Or well, not, she had Dobermans too, but she'd always had an Aussie and this was her first golden. And and uh, the dog's name is Rue. And of course, her Aussies are lovely, but fairly typical of the breed. Like, don't want you to like pet them right on the top of the head. Don't want you to like get right up in their face. Like they're going to do anything if you do it. It's just not like their favorite thing. Like they're going to look away mm-hmm. a little bit, maybe a little lip licking. And she had to train herself as a person to literally hold Rue's face and be like, you're a good dog, Rue dog. <laughs> And pet her on the head because like (laughs) our Goldens want to be squished. I would even argue like some of them need to be squished. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a little bit of a different question than the one that you asked where it's like some dogs need a heavier hand, right? We've all heard that. We've all talked about it for many years. And I don't know that I think it's the same question. So do I think my dogs could handle an aversive and recover quickly. I absolutely do because I think they have, we have bred them to do that on purpose that they can handle an environmental thing that they find very aversive and make a quick recovery and are quite resilient. But I don't think that that at all means that they then need to have an aversive in order to learn because we haven't seen that correlation at all. So our dogs are, are, I mean, we're pretty open on our practice that we're, we're relatively in the kind of um, reinforcements based contingency pattern of training. Um, And we're typically looking for things to reinforce rather than focusing on other thought processes. That's just generally how we do it. Um, I also am a big believer that like, we're always doing something like 
do I punish my dogs? I'm, I'm, like, I'm sure I do. I don't typically have like a punishment plan for my dogs, if that makes sense. Like, are there things that I do that are punishing to my dogs? Yes, I'm, I'm sure that that's true, but I, it's not typically part of my plan. If I sit out to teach one of my service dogs, like today, we're going to learn how to loose leash walk in general, like punishment wouldn't be on the plan of how I was going to teach that. So, and they learn it just fine, even though they are really resilient. And especially when they're about nine months old, it makes them just like absolute assholes because they're nine months old and they're afraid of nothing and they're enormously forward. And so they can be like for about four weeks, I've got three, nine month old right now in the program and we call it the hell age. And we're just (laughs) like, well, here we are in the hell age. Um, but they come out of it and, and we don't tend to need to use like, like a schedule of aversives to do that. So it's not usually in my training plan, but obviously like they can take an aversive because we've genetically selected for that. Is that why? And now with, with the dogs that you have that are more like lower energy and high bit ability though, then could you imagine that maybe, you know, like a working line Malinois is going to be completely different than that. You yeah. Know? I mean, and then, I think yeah, there's, and then there's like, a reason we don't have like a Malinois breeding service dog school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> sounds like, yeah, chaos. exactly. Um, yeah. I think, you know, for me, um, I don't know. I think like the whole world listened to the Susan Garrett Ivan podcast. Like I know I certainly did. And, (laughs) and I feel like, like I, I did appreciate what Susan said about like, to me, it's, it's the worldview in which you look at the training scenario. Like I just typically don't have punishment in my, in my training schedule. Like that's, if I'm sitting down and saying, okay, I'm going to take the next three minutes and work this behavior chain in this, in this thing, my contingency for if the dog doesn't do it or does this instead is usually to either ignore it or to stop my session, put the dog up and figure out where I set my environment. So then I guess, does that make sense? So yeah, I I guess what, I guess what makes it hard for, for, um, clients then is they, they messed up. They didn't call you. They didn't talk to Anthony. They, they went to cute, fluffy dog salon. Right. <laughs> and they got the dog that looked good and they got the golden retriever and they didn't realize that all the dogs had ducks in their mouth and they right. got the field golden and now they want to take it to the coffee shop and get it to lay down on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I guess my question to you would be if I gave you, you know, like if I gave you a field Labrador and I snuck him into your program with all of your goldens and I was like, okay, you're just going to train this one along with all your other ones. Right. And you're just going to treat him exactly the same. Like, don't, don't pretend, pretend he's just one of the other ones. Like, do you think your training would be exactly identical? Yeah. That's a really. And then if not, why even, question. why even worry about genetics? Yeah. You that's know? an excellent question. And I want to give it a fair answer. No, my training plan wouldn't look the same because Mm -hmm. I know for sure. And I have done field labs and field goldens, not field gold. I haven't done field goldens as service dogs, but I've done field labs as service dogs. So I've done that thing um, alongside my goldens, um, just like the one time. 
And, uh, <laughs> but I did finish the dog out and it didn't look the same. So what I, my behavior plan looked the same, but the amount of time that I put into that dog versus the amount of time I put into my dogs to get similar behavior was drastically different. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, for instance, a good example of that, that would be really honest is by the time my goldens are potty trained. So like four months, five months old, they're doing public access. (laughs) Like now are they like, you know, going to like an Alabama football game. No, cause, cause that's chaos, but they're doing pretty, pretty reasonable public access. We partner with a, uh, with a school here in town that allows us to, um, we're, we're heavy partners with them. So we work a lot of things together and, um, and those dogs are in the school, certainly by five months old, usually by four months old, like in the school, multiple days a week working. Um, They'll certainly go to the grocery store at that age. They, um, by six months old, they're going to the movies, you know, so they have really heavy public access, very young because they are that way. When I did the field lab, that was not <laughs> true. Now, by the end, he was the- in the Alabama football game, right? right exactly. <laughs> um, but by the end of the two years, both dogs were ready, like both sets, like dogs were ready to graduate and had the skill sets needed to do it. But I'm here to tell you, I, I didn't have that Labrador in that kind of public access. That Labrador was like walking into a pet supplies plus store, mm-hmm. just trying mm-hmm. to like hold himself together. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, so it was, it was a very, it was a different structure to the plan, but what we actually did, like how we reinforced what we did was different, but the timing was, or was the same, but the timing was very different. So, and then on the flip side of that is that, man, I had that dog doing some magical tasking skills four months before my Goldens had ever thought about yep, opening yep, their mouth yep. to think about opening the refrigerator, to think about getting the water <laughs> bottle. That field lab was like, look at this. I can she was like, I've been it. doing I can, this. <laughs> I can get it, I can deliver it to you. I can close it, I can do it 10 times. And then I will ask you what else we should do. And so, you know, there were pros and cons to both. And, um, but yeah, as far as like what my training schedule looked like, it didn't look different, but my criteria was really different. My antecedent mm-hmm. arrangement was certainly like really different. Yeah, that really makes sense. Different. That makes sense. That was, was a great answer. No, that makes sense. I was going to, so I was actually, I was going to ask sort of a similar question earlier, but I was wondering about, you mentioned how the way you train is more um, of a reinforcement based approach with your program, but a lot of the service programs out there aren't that way. And I was yeah. wondering you know, those programs, they have their own breeding program um, that they're selecting for. And I'm I'm wondering, like, are those dogs generally also more resilient, which is why those programs are using the methods that they use. And maybe they're trying to get uh, quick results or quicker Mm -hmm. results with the way in which they they're maybe working with dogs. Yeah. So I think that's a, a another really excellent question. And I would say that I'm not the best expert to answer that. Michelle Puglio is um, because Michelle Puglio is the trainer that 
switched guide dogs over from traditional method to clicker training many years ago, quite successfully. And then she has, she has worked with, she said it this weekend. I was just came out from clicker expo and um, she said how many organizations, and it was something like in the eighties or nineties um, of number of organizations that she's gone into that, that are, that are changing or considering changing the way that they're training. So she's more of an expert than I am, but I can say this, um, my understanding from what I've heard and read from others that have more experience in this area with other organizations is that the it's, it's about graduation rate in most cases. So like for instance, and this is, this is also like, it's a, it's a false figure right now, but as of right now, I have a hundred percent graduation rate. Now, clearly no one can stay a hundred percent forever. Like that's crazy, but I mean, I've, I've produced a fair number of dogs. I think the ones I have in my program now are, um, finishing out the thirties. So I'm, I've done almost 40 and, uh, that are either in training or have been finished and a hundred percent have made it. And if you look statistically at like some of the organizations that are using more traditional methods in their training, um, their graduation rate is, is significantly lower. And for me and my program, if I'm doing less than 75 to 85% success, I'm starting to ask some big questions about what's happening here. And so if, if an acceptable number is 35 to 50% of graduating dogs that are attempting the program for me and my program, that would start to have me asking some big questions about what's happening here. Why am I losing 50% of my dogs or 25% of my dogs? Like what's, what's happening. And, and I think, um, like I said, I think Michelle Puglio is certainly, she's, she's well on record on this and has written quite a lot on the subject. And I think she's a better resource for that than I am. But, um, but it, it is kind of a quote unquote accepted thing in large service dog organizations that the washout rate be pretty high. Um, and I, and I do think that, that, that at least needs to be explored further. And I don't know why that is, or what the situation is. I have a very small program comparatively, very small. So I think to compare a program that's producing a hundred dogs a year to my program, that's producing five to 10 dogs a year is unfair to both programs. It's not fair to my program. And it's certainly not fair to their program. Yeah. I was so, going to, I was going to ask you that uh, while, while you were talking, I was just thinking, I was just thinking about that. Like you're, you know, you have a smaller program. You're more selective in many respects. And I'm not. We're selective on our, we're differently selective on our recipients. We're differently selective on our dogs. We're not trying to produce at this big, big scale. We're a boutique program. And I don't think it's a, a really a fair comparison or even certainly not an equal comparison, but I do have questions about, about that. Um, when I think about what's going on with service dogs and, um, my experience having met dogs from a number of programs just out and about, not necessarily even professionally, but just like you're at Disney and you see 10 dogs working and they all vested with logos. So you know where they came from. My experience has not been that I have not seen more resiliency 
from dogs in more traditional method programs. Like as far as what they look like when they're graduated and out working, I've, I've not seen something that looks, appears to me to be more resilient based on just ethograms of body language and stress signals. That's not been my experience. So before, uh, before I guess we let you go, um, you wanted to say something before, I don't know what it was. We were, ta- you were starting to talk about like, I think the structure of a dog with fly ball and, and all that yeah. stuff. And so I kind of wanted to, I was curious to hear what you had to say on whatever you were going to talk about on that. Yeah. So I mean, like you had I'm, a little twinkle in your eye. I, on feel that like, I love it. It makes so. me crazy. So I, I, love, I mean, obviously I love breeding and I like, I like pretty animals in general. And I'm, I am a big believer that, that form follows function and also function follows form. So I think whether your primary goal with your dog is a function or is a form, I don't think it really matters because to me, if a dog performs a function really, really well, so is a great hunter but doesn't have form, meaning doesn't have structure, he's not going to hunt as efficiently or as long or without orthopedic change or whatever. Or, um, and let's talk something really simple, like coat type, right? My, I mean, goldens are pretty water resistant. Um, so if you're, if you're starting to lose coat type, so I'm not talking like coat furnishings, cause that's a dog show thing. Like I can make length of coat and I love a good like you, if anybody's seen my goldens, you know, I love coat, but we're talking about like actual texture of coat, which is really, really functional. And if you start hunting a dog that lacks coat type, the chances of that dog getting scratched and brambled in the woods is much, much higher. So I think you can't pull one away without the other. And I think I probably feel passionately about this because I came from Whippets. That was my first breed. That's what I started with. And in Whippets in particular, right, they're racing dogs. And so there are two distinct types of Whippets as there are in most breeds, right? You have the race bred Whippets and you have the show bred Whippets. And, um, and it's, it's been a hot debate since the beginning of time, I think in every breed of which is better and which is whatever. And my personal experience in general is, is that and again, I think this, this very well could be my own bias. So I really want to be like super open that I come from a whole worldview that really values form. We're just going to let you know, we're probably going to edit that out and we'll, we'll probably just like, you know, botch up your words. a little Right. Botch it up That's so that like... it makes me say something horrible. And I like, everybody hates me, <laughs> but like, to me, I see dogs that can do both really, really pretty, like pretty incredibly well from the certain dog show people that also their breeds perform their breed function very well. And I see less of that from the function people. And, and I don't, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. And there are certainly things in certain breed standards with the AKC that are problematic. You know, I don't think anybody can look at brachiocephalic breeds being shown in the American Kennel Club and not say, hey, we we have this is problematic. We have a a problem here. But um, but I do think that sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater in both directions that that we can't have a dog that is so 
overdone and has so much coat that it can't perform its function. And we also can't have a dog that's so functional that it, it loses any breed type or form to be recognizable as, as what it is. If we're talking about heritage breeding. Now, if we're talking about truly functional breeding, that we are breeding dogs to be the ideal pet dog or the ideal fly ball dog or the ideal bite sport dog, that's a completely different ethical discussion than trying to say we could have dogs that do both and. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And I don't know. I Like, I love to watch my whippets run. Like, I love it. I think I would be super sad if I had one that didn't do the double suspension gallop. It was, it's amazing. Um, but I also... Like, I want them to take my breath away when they stand still. Like, I, I want both things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for coming on. This was cool. It's sure. a lot of fun. Yeah, very informative. Thank you. Sure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So tell everyone where they can find you, what your yeah. foundation is so, Like I said, about. I don't have a website. For no my- website. No website. Come on. I don't have a website for my breeding program. No, no for her breeding program. Nah. But my not my service dog program is um, on all the things at the Rover Chase Foundation. So um, that's R-O-V-E-R-C-H-A-S-E, the Rover Chase Foundation. And it's on all the things. That's the website, uh, the roverchasefoundation.org. It's on all social media platforms. Um, I'm like... I need to hire a 12 year old to run my TikTok for me, but we try to <laughs> put, we a, <laughs> right. We do, we do try to put a fair amount of content on TikTok, particularly about the breeding and early rearing process. So our zero, like our birth to 12 week process, we're pretty active on TikTok about what we do and what that looks like. Um, and so, yeah, you can find us on all those social media platforms and then you can find me on social media, just at my name, which is Abigail Whithauer, W-I-T-T-H-A-U-E-R. And you can text me, call me, send a carrier pigeon, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to link, uh, we'll link the, uh, the Rover Chase Foundation awesome. and, and your, uh, your website, your business. And I'd be like the worst nonprofit owner ever if I didn't tell you that like we are completely funded by donations and we need money. So um, like in order to place these service dogs, like it does in fact take money. Um, and so, yeah, and it's, um, yeah, to train them all the way through the way that we do it with our breeding program. And then two years of training is, is right about $35,000 a dog. So it's, it's a big deal, but yeah, you can learn all about that on the website and find me and those things. Um, And if you want to hear me talk about service dogs and not just breeding, I have a presentation at dog behavior conference next month. So which is, uh, is that that's online, right? Yeah, it's online. It's a two hour talk on the actual service dog program. So a little bit about breeding in that talk, um, like specifically how we are selecting specifically for our purpose. Um, and then the majority of it is on, uh, geared towards professional trainers who are interested in either training one service dog at a time or interested in just how it's done and what we do. And I'm the first to say, like, I have nothing proprietary, literally nothing I've said today is not something I didn't learn from somebody else. Um, and it's the same with the service dog program. Like there's, there's nothing that we're doing that lots of other people aren't also doing 
differently and equally as well, or the same and well. So, yeah. But do you have do you have the date of uh, when you're presenting? I'm presenting on that Saturday. So hold on, I will tell you. Just so we can put it in here because. I want to say like, oh, the I lied. It's I'm presenting on Sunday, April the 23rd. And I believe it, yeah. And I believe it's at 9 a.m. Central time. Okay. Right. So, but yeah. And um, the session is, uh, and uh, there'll be a Q&A afterwards too. So, cool. All right. yeah. Well, thank you very much. This was awesome. We appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Canine Classroom. If you like the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends, and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed.